Okay, you you try to figure out who I'm talking about. Who is this person that I'm going to tell you about right now? A boy grows up in a wealthy family in a major city of a sophisticated culture. As a child, he's immersed in the orthodox religion of his country and attends one of the most well-known worship centers in the land. In that setting, he becomes a disciple under one of the most influential leaders of his tradition. He becomes a zealot for his faith, passionately devouring his teachings, and passionately pursuing his enemies. And then something amazing happens. Somehow, he becomes convinced that the very persons he's been opposing were right about their faith. And though they're small in number and despised by his religious leaders and culture, this young man joins the ranks of those he had so zealously opposed. He enters a period of intense study, praying and fasting in order to fulfill a calling he firmly believes. In the years to come, although his convictions and his actions cost him his reputation, his comforts, his freedom, and ultimately his life, this man of faith never wavers from his calling. What was his name? Well, his name was Jibril L. M. Riki. Uh, this man grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, United States. He attended the well-known Baptist church before becoming a Muslim. He joined the allies of Osama bin Laden's Al-Qaeda, and he died in 1997 while participating in a jihad attack in Kashmir. Uh, I read about this in the U.S. News and World Report magazine from 2001. Now, uh, you're, you're probably thinking, I'm assuming you're thinking something similar to what I was thinking when I read that. And before I read that man's name, I, I, I'm, pro I'm assuming you're thinking that I was talking about the Apostle Paul, right? Some of you are shaking your heads. Yes, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Sounds, sounds very similar, doesn't it? And the parallels in, in the lives of these men are striking. Each was willing to sacrifice for the calling he believed his God had placed on his life. But we should also realize that these conflicting callings cannot both be of God. Right? In other words, they both can't be right uh, if they're conflicting. But we also should realize these conflicting callings um uh, certainly both can't be of God. And this realization presses us to identify then what kind of calling is genuine and what is counterfeit. And so the question for you to think about here is, does then, as, as we look at kind of Paul's going to give some, some biographical stuff here in Ephesians 3, and, and as we look at that, does does examining the calling here of the Apostle Paul have any relevance to determining whether your calling is a genuine calling or is it a counterfeit calling? Now, now listen closely here because uh, I'm not suggesting the same kind of confirmation is necessary for us, right? Uh, I don't expect any of you to uh, be riding to Damascus and have a light blind you and knock you off your animal and, uh, and and then you have a conversion experience on your way to Damascus. 
but I am suggesting that we can see this calling of Paul as a window that God opens for examining the effects of a true calling on the life of any believer. And so an examination here of Paul's call may reveal to us the impressions that a true calling is going to leave on one's life and and, and even on our hearts. So uh, that's important that we we uh, just kind of think about that as we get into Ephesians 3 here. Look at uh, verse 1. Ephesians 3 verse 1. And what help if I get in the right book? Okay, Ephesians 3 verse 1. Uh, the Bible says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, I have two thoughts for you to, to, to uh, kind, of, kind of work in tandem here as, as we go through the text. I have a big idea, and then I have the normal proposition for you. And I didn't put that in your notes if, if you have the notes off that email and you're taking notes. The, the big idea is, is this, my friends, that the supreme purpose of the church is to glorify God by displaying his character. See, that's, that's what we, the church, the church, by the way, I don't mean a building or programs or any of that sort of thing. Uh, we, the church, are the people, the, the Jews and all the Gentiles together who've put their faith in Christ. They're the ones making up the church here. And, and, and our supreme purpose is to glorify God. Now, how do we do that? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> well, it, God calls people. He calls he calls the Christians. And so we need to remember as as just as Paul was called you you should be called as well. Now not the same way of course, but here's the proposition uh for you to consider from this text that God wants you to be compelled by a true calling, not a false one. 
He wants a genuine calling in your life. And that, that'll make a huge difference. It, if you're compelled by a true calling, well, you're not going to be the same person just as, uh, as Paul wasn't the same. So there's three results of a true calling here. And uh, just take these lessons to heart as we go through these. Number one, here, here's the first result. That when compelled by a true calling of God, oh, sorry, there's your uh, big idea. The supreme purpose of the church is to glorify God by displaying his character. Proposition is that God wants you to be compelled by a true calling. And then, uh, okay, here's, here's the first result. That when compelled by a true calling of God, a believer is captured by God's goals. You're, you're captured by God's goals. God has goals that, uh, that he's accomplishing. So what are God's goals? Uh, and of course, the same for, for Paul we see in this text is, is going to apply to you as well here. So number one is, uh, one called by God is willing to die to self. So think about that. Are you willing to die to self? That's God's first goal for you. Now, if you look at those first few verses, you'll notice uh, Paul mentions his his uh, his Christian name, if you will. We need to remember that Paul, prior to his calling, what was his name? What was the name his parents gave him? You hopefully you remember the parent. His parents gave him Saul, which of course is a reminder. He he's as we read in uh, Philippians. What tribe is he from? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And, of course, that was a reminder of the first king of Israel. Uh, the first king of Israel was chosen for not godly character, but, uh, you know, how tall was he? How strong was he? Uh, you know, he's, he's a, you know, good-looking guy, hopefully a guy that demands respect. But what does the name Paul mean? Well, my understanding of the name Paul, it means little or small. Now, do you see what God has done in this man's life? Because God is the one who changed him from Saul to Paul. And so in his calling here, uh, even, even in just that one word there, th- this man's gone from big Saul to small Paul. He's gone from big Saul to small Paul. So uh, you, you can see even in that uh, the calling from God here is this idea Paul's dying to self. So what does dying to self involve? Well, in verse 1, we'll see here that dying to self involves a willingness to sacrifice privilege. I could really use your help here, uh, people who normally do PowerPoint. Uh, Sorry, I'm really messing it up. But uh, dying to self involves a willingness to sacrifice privilege. See, Paul's earthly privilege was cut away by his calling. He's not merely small Paul. Notice in verse 1, what, what does he call himself? He, he, he has, here, <laughs> this is interesting because he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner. Uh, Ephesians is one of the prison epistles. And so here's somebody who's known prestige, but now he's in prison. And so even though he is, even while he, he's destitute, despised, and forsaken, Paul views himself as fulfilling a calling 
God's calling. And even while he's under arrest, what is he doing? He's preaching the gospel. And even if a Roman soldier or two is chained to him, he's he's still preaching to those guys. And we we see elsewhere in scripture that uh, people in Caesar's own household became Christians. And so my friends, genuine calling requires a willingness to forsake personal privilege. It requires a willingness to forsake personal privilege. Now there's more here. Uh, so look at this. Number two. Dying to self involves a willingness to deny merit. Uh, deny merit. Now another way to evaluate a true calling is by considering the various ways that people handle their loss of privilege. How do you handle loss of privilege? That's a hard one. Well, we, we don't like losing privileges, do we? We, we don't like being put into lockdown. That, uh, that, that tends to make us grumpy and uh, whinge and whine, right? When you lose privileges, it's not easy. Uh, some people are willing to sacrifice as long as they believe their suffering will earn them something. Yet Paul's willingness to, to die to self included you know, willingness to deny himself of any merit. You're, if you're looking at verse 2, uh, hopefully you'll notice this. Because Paul, he's not going to claim credit for any aspect of his calling. In verse 2, he says, notice verse 2, he says, The stewardship of God's grace was given to me. It was given to me. He's, he's passive in this. It's given to him. Paul knew his ministry wasn't earned. He knew his ministry wasn't deserved. It was simply given to him by God. And uh, we too must believe that we are recipients of unconditional grace and, and we never deserve God's grace. Now some people with uh, counterfeit callings are willing to make great sacrifice because they believe they're purchasing the blessing of their God. Uh, first example that comes to my mind is, well, at least if the reports are correct, uh, those who were responsible for 9-11 back in the year 2001 uh, believed themselves to be earning palaces and virgins in heaven by sacrificing their lives for their cause. Now, in contrast to that, the Apostle Paul denies what he has done and, and sacrifice and, and sacrifice earn him anything. He knows his heaven is not going to come by his own hands. It's, it's not coming by his own works. The second goal. Now remember the what's the point here? We're, we're to be captured by God's goals. Well, uh, the, the second goal here is that one called by God is willing to live for others. Paul was willing to live for others. And it's interesting in verse 1, Paul says, uh, he's a prisoner for whose sake? Notice verse 1 says, uh, Paul says, it was for the sake of you Gentiles. And then in verse 2, Paul says, the stewardship that was given to me was for you. In other words, Paul sees himself as a prisoner and a steward for the sake of other people. I, I heard about, uh, maybe you, you heard about these missionaries. It's an interesting story. You can read about it online. Uh, 
just listen to the the story of I got a really bad photo off the the internet here, but it's the best one I could find. Listen to the testimony of of missionary Martin Burnham uh, and his wife White Gracia. Hopefully, you've you've heard about these people. Very interesting. They were uh, Martin was killed in the Philippines. Uh, members of a terrorist group had held the Burnhams as prisoner for 376 days. And during that time, Martin was often used as a servant to carry the terrorist supplies in the treacherous terrain. But while bearing their loads, he never complained, viewing even his servitude as a calling of God and an opportunity for the gospel. Though the Burnhams were increasingly weak and malnourished, when relief agencies managed to get food packages to them, they shared their food with their captors. At one point, Martin even repaired a satellite phone for, for these terrorists. And he said to his wife, quote, The Bible says, serve the Lord with gladness. Let's go all the way. Let's serve him all the way with gladness. The evidence of that resolve became apparent even to his captors, who would debate about who would chain him every night. Each hated to be the one to chain Martin because every night he would thank them. Why would anyone submit to being a prisoner and a servant of others with joy? The answer lies in the fact that over and over in the evenings, Martin would patiently explain the gospel to his Muslim captors. He was living for them, and he viewed his situation as a calling of God to minister the gospel to those lost souls. By the way, Martin died. Uh, the, uh, the, mil- the Philippine military came in and tried to rescue them. Uh, Gracia was, was rescued, but Martin died. But it's an amazing story. Uh, it, we, we, this is an example of kind of a modern-day person who, people who were the Burnhams. They were willing to live for others. But what does living for others involve? Number two, living for others involves revealing what you know. Revealing what you know. Paul knew the gospel. <clears throat> he knew this this good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, those verses 3 to 6, it's very interesting because Paul's calling, he recognized, was to be a fountain of knowledge, pouring, just pouring this life-giving water out to others. He's not interested in keeping it to himself. Uh, and In fact, Paul's goal here is to reveal what he knows. What's the mystery that was previously hidden that Paul wanted the Ephesians to know? Well, the answer is in verse 6. The answer is in verse 6. And he, he says, this mystery is, here you go, you ready? Drum roll. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery is that through the gospel, the the people who are non-Jews are heirs together with Israelites. So the question is, are you... Someone who's living for others. How do you know if you're doing that? You have to be revealing what you know. Hopefully you know the good news of Jesus Christ. If not, you need to get to know the good news of Jesus Christ so that 
you can be revealing this good news, this gospel to other people. And number two, living for others involves delighting in God's promise. We, we read that at the end of verse six there. So Paul delighted in the thought that the, the Jews and the non-Jews are one in Christ. And we read in chapter two, how did that, how is that accomplished? It's through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the atoning death of Christ. It makes us all equally holy and precious to our Father in heaven. So are you delighting in what the gospel promises do? Are you delighting in that? If you're living for others, you're going to be delighting in this, in, in God's promises. But there's a second result. Number two, when compelled by a true calling of God, a believer is captivated by God's grace to the believer. God's grace comes individually to, to every believer. And it's interesting in verse 7. Look what Paul does in verse 7, uh, chapter 3 here. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So Paul recognizes it's God's grace, his unmerited favor to him. Uh, that made this, this possible. And so Paul's reminding his readers he became a servant of this good news by the grace of God. And notice the other part there. It's, it's the working of his power. And so this reminds us of the way that God's power arrested and transformed Paul on the road to Damascus. God took Saul and he reached down and he turned this man from being Saul, the persecutor of Christians, to being Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and it was through no power of his own. It was, it was not his decision to do this. It was just sheer grace that transformed Paul. But as astounding as that grace was, the apostle uh, Paul here doesn't leave the work of God's grace in the past. If you notice the, uh, the tense of the uh, verbs in particular, in, in these verses, it's interesting. In, in fact, in verse 8, the Apostle Paul speaks of himself in the present tense. When he says, notice what he says, an amazing statement in verse 8. He says, I am the very least of all the saints. Wow. He understands his human status there, doesn't he? But he also understands that God's grace is greater than his human status. Because he sees himself... Uh, it, you've probably heard me say this, not original with me, that I'm the greatest sinner I know. And we should all think that way. We should all believe that we're the greatest sinner we know. Paul believed that. And so that's why he says, I am the very least of all the saints. That's the human status. But but he also understands with that comes God's grace, and, and that's greater than our human status. And as a result, what does he do? He glories in his divine task. What a task that, that, that is there. That's a great privilege. And so think about that, my friends. Are you captivated by God's grace in your life like, like Paul was? You should be. <laughs> you should be amazed that God would call you and use you. He doesn't have to do that. What a wonderful privilege he does. And then number three, now the last one. 
The third result is when compelled by a true calling of God, a believer is fascinated by God's grace to the church. So point number two is to the believer, individual believer, but now it's corporately to all believers. And notice the reason why Paul said he would make plain the mystery of the Gentiles' inclusion here in the promise. It's found in verse 10. Answers in verse 10. So that, when you see so that, it's, it's giving you the answer, the purpose. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what's going on there? God's using the church to display his glory to the heavens, particularly to angels. Now, why should you be fascinated by God's grace? Let me just, according to this text, here's a few things to think about. Number one, the church is a witness to glory. Uh, the church is supposed to be displaying God's own character, right? And it's interesting that the one thing mentioned here is wisdom, the wisdom of God. And notice how Paul describes it. He calls it the manifold wisdom. The, the, the words manifold wisdom there are reflecting the idea of something that is multicolored, something that is diverse. It's, it's not just black and white. It's, it's beautiful. And in verse 11, I want you to notice why God's wisdom is bringing together different cultures and ethnicities into this redeemed body. Why is he doing it? Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, did you notice how this was accomplished? Hopefully you did in verse 11. Isn't that amazing? Should be. We who are coming from every tribe and nation, people and and different personalities here are on display as a church before the heavenly host. And what are we doing? We're giving testimony to the wisdom of God. The multicolored, diverse wisdom of God. So the heavenly host are to look at those of us in the church even though we are sinners, even though we have different personalities, cultural prejudices, um, even though we have different skin colors, and hopefully the angels are looking at, at us and saying, how did God do that? <laughs> so the manifold wisdom of the Creator God is really great. Now why is God doing this? Because the uniting of sinners here into the body of Christ, makes his grace more brilliant. And so even more brilliant to the host of heaven. So by our unity in Christ's church, we're actually preaching a sermon to the angels about God's power and his wisdom and his glory. It it should be declaring and, and displaying something about God. And this purpose should be a cause of great delight, for we serve not for ourselves, but for the sake of uniting others in the church for the glory of God. So the church is a witness to glory. And then number two, the church has access to glory. Did you know that that's amazing? It's an incredible 
statement uh, there in verse 12, considering our fallen nature. If you consider your fallen nature, verse 12 is amazing because it says, uh, as it talked about Jesus Christ, our Lord, in verse 11, then in verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So despite the fact that you and I are weak, we're sinful, we have freedom and confidence to approach the creator God. Now, do you see the irony in that? Now, here's Paul. He's imprisoned by Caesar, yet he says we have, and he has freedom to approach God. That's beautiful, isn't it? Because the church always has access to this glory, has access and, and can approach God. So even in a physical prison, he can't be stopped. This can't be stopped. And, and so even the most powerful people and nations in the world can't stop this access. Coronavirus, COVID-19 can't stop it. There is nothing. Jacinda certainly can't. And so how can Paul or anyone claim these privileges? And he gives, by the way, there in verses 11 to 12, he gives both the reason as well as the means to claim these privileges. You need to note the the reason and the means. Notice the reason is Jesus Christ. That's the end of verse 11. The, the reason this, this is, is, is happening is because of Christ. And the means for this to happen in your life and in the church is through faith in Christ. That's It's not works, not anything else. It's through faith in Christ. We must believe. We must trust. Let me give you an illustration I, I, I found helpful. Back in June of 2002, a group of nine coal miners made the national headlines in the United States. Uh, It was during a 77-hour ordeal to rescue them from a flooded underground mine there uh, where my parents live in the state of Pennsylvania. When they emerged from the mine, restaurants and the petrol stations posted on their signs, Nine Alive, Prayers Answered. It was a time of glorious celebration for their escape from death. But there were days of even greater glory ahead when the story of what happened in that wet darkness began to emerge. When the water began to come in on those men, they rushed for escape. But when they recognized that the path was closed, they saved the lives of others by shouting to those who were coming down on a shift change to run for their lives because of the rising water. After that heroism, these trapped men began their finest hours of glory. Everything they had was to be shared. A sandwich and a drink were shared. They huddled together to share body heat. They even took turns sharing the little piece of dry space above the water. They tied themselves together to keep anyone from floating off in unconsciousness. And they bound themselves one to the other with the commitment that they would live or die as a group. When the outside world learned all they had, all that had happened, we all said, glory. Glory was the word they used. And so each of the men were willing to give his life to save the lives of others. Beautiful story, isn't it? So there's some, there's implications from Hebrews, not Hebrews, Ephesians 3 that we need to think about. See, this, this text calls us to recognize 
and respect the church, to respect the immense centrality of the church. And uh, John Stott's been helpful to me here in his commentary on Ephesians. He suggested that it includes three grand facts. Here's some implications you think about as we think about the church. Number one, the church is central to history. It's central to history. The open secret here is that the church, which is, of course, a, a something that's uh, multi-ethnicity, it's multinational, it's uh, what some have called the third race. It's going to rule in the universe with Jesus Christ. And, uh, we, of course, we know if we know our Bibles that uh, only the church is going to survive history. Even our marriages won't survive that. Families aren't aren't going to exist in eternity. Uh, but there's going to be one big family as we are the children of God. So the church is central to history. And then number two, the church is central to the gospel. Ephesians teaches that the complete gospel involves both the preaching of Christ and then this mystery of the church. We, we, we see Christ died and rose not only to save, but to create a single new humanity. He, he's made this new community, this new society, this third race. And that means the local church that we attend is very important. It's the third race that is watched by the world and also watched by the angels. And so when it, when the church preaches Christ and lives as the church, souls are going to be drawn to Christ who is the head of the church. And then number three, the the church is central to Christian living. Did you notice how the text ends in verse 13? Paul is alluding to his own suffering there in verse 13. In verse 13, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul's in prison. He's suffering. Paul's willing to pay any price to see the church go forward. He's willing to sacrifice himself if that if that's necessary. And so as an apostle, he saw his sufferings here. Notice it's it was for the church's glory, not his own. I like what one commentator by the name of Kent Hughes said. He said, uh, quote, he says, The bottom line is, the church is not an option for believers nor is supporting it an option. I'm not saying you have to go to church to be a Christian, but you also do not have to go home to be married. However, if you do not frequent your home, your relationship will be in jeopardy. Attendance and participation in your local church is not an option. Paul's gospel was Christ and the church. So that's important uh, to remember. What's it all pointing toward? So... Uh, ultimately, the church is the bride of Christ, right? We'll be married to Jesus Christ forever. And so we learn from Paul's words that our calling has many similar attributes, if it's a genuine calling. So here's how you can know. Here's how you can know. All right, just think about, make the screen blank here for you, because I want you to just think about this. You can learn from Paul's words here. How how do you know if you have a genuine calling? Well, number one, you're going to be willing to die to self and live for others. 
Paul was willing to die to self and live for others. So are you. Are you willing to die to self and live for others? I'm just going to close this out for now. How do I do that? Sorry. I'm, oh, there it is. There we go. So uh, are you willing to die to self and live for others? Remember Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. Uh, someone who has a genuine calling, that's, that's what they're doing. And then number two, the second point was, you're going to vow to share with others everything that you have in Christ. You're going to share your, your, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You're going to share the gospel, this good news, and everything else. Uh, the whole union that you have with Christ. You're going to share all the, those wonderful rights and privileges that, that come with being a Christian. And three, you're, you're going to embrace those who may kill you. You're going to embrace them. You're going to love them. And you're going to obey the, the second great commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so, why would anybody do those sort of things? That's really radical, isn't it? That is extremely radical. And the answer is found in the text. Because the, the only way you're going to do this is because we desire the watching world and the angels to give glory to God. How? How? Well, when they observe the church displaying the character of God, then they're going to give glory to God. And so the angels in the world are going to going to look at the church as they're displaying God's own character and they're going to they're just going to be amazed. They're going to be wowed. And so my friends, we we want God to enable us to accurately display his character. Right? What does 1 Corinthians 10:31 say? Even in the mundane things of life like eating and drinking or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. So may God enable us to accurately display his character. Let me pray for you, and then uh, we can chit-chat together. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the revealing the mystery. Thank you for this glorious union uh, that you have wrought in the, the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, that <laughs> It's only because of your grace that that could happen. And so we're, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for saving uh, lost sinners and doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. May we be amazed at your grace. May we understand your goals here. And uh, may we never lose sight of who you are. So we would we would accurately and faithfully display your fame, your glory, and your own character to the angels in the world. And may we not do this for ourselves, but may we do it for the, the right motives and the right reasons uh, to give glory to you, our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.